Uh, welcome everyone to another episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series. Uh, I'm your host, Charles Sidor, a senior at the Notre Dame International Security Center. And my guest today is Professor Ian Johnson. He is an associate professor of military history here at Notre Dame. His focuses recently have included the origins and conduct of war and the maintenance of peace. He received his PhD from Ohio State in 2016 and has been the recipient of several fellowships at Yale and I believe the University of Texas at Austin. Am I missing anything important there? No. No? That's about the gist of it. Sounds wonderful. So you have a new book coming out very soon called The Faustinian Bargain, looking at German-Soviet cooperation in the interwar period. And I'm very interested to know more about sort of the level of that cooperation that took place between the two countries. Absolutely. So just for a little context, in the aftermath of the First World War, Germany had, of course, been defeated. And the victorious allies wanted to prevent Germany from potentially launching a new war in the future. So Germany was demilitarized, demobilized. Its army was shrunk from over 4 million men to 100,000. Inspectors were stationed across its territory to make sure that Germany couldn't build new weapon systems, tanks, planes, aircraft, uh, chemical weapons, submarines, all, all banned. And at the same time, a thousand miles east, Vladimir Lenin had succeeded in, uh, in winning the Russian Civil War by, by 1920 and establishing firm control over the, the core parts of the former Russian Empire, uh, establishing first Soviet Russia and then the Soviet Union. These two states were very isolated in the international system. The Germans obviously uh, seeking to evade the, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles that prevented them from rearming. And so they turned to each other. They began talking essentially as soon as the First World War ended. And by 1922, they'd established a, a fairly extensive, uh, in broad strokes, outline of potential cooperation. And the program would initially center on corporate ventures, banned industrial production, things like chemical weapons that Germany could not develop at home. They relocated those laboratories, those scientists, those factories to secret facilities located in Russia, away from the, the prying eyes of the victorious allies. And eventually they started transferring a lot more. They started relocating essentially their entire underground air force program. They began training pilots, developing uh, tank experts, developing chemical weapons and testing new deployment technologies. And essentially Germany began the rearmament process inside the Soviet Union through the, the fall of 1933. And then, of course, they would renew their cooperation in 1939, marking the beginning of the Second World War. That's actually quite fascinating. So I want to talk about sort of the beginnings of this cooperation. Um, who was sort of the first state that really reached out? Because I know early on in Soviet foreign policy, they were kind of aggressive with their wanting to expand communism. And I kind of feel like that sort of aggressive expansion would kind of play counter to German fears of sort of the influx of communism into their country. So I was wondering if that somehow played a setback initially, or was ideology sort of ignored and for the sake of a greater good? Absolutely. No, the, these two groups, so the German military, which largely had its own, ran its own independent foreign policy up until the mid-1920s, and the Soviet, the leadership of the Soviet Union, they hated each other. Ideologically, they were, they were rivals. The German military corps, they were mostly monarchists. They tended to be from the right or far right. And in, in the Soviet Union, you had people who, who saw them as the very problem with, uh, with, with Germany, these, these militarist officers. And of course, the German military thought the Soviet Union were these, these bloodstained criminals and, and left-wing revolutionaries. So they, they hated each other. It would be the Germans who first reached out to the Soviets uh, in the aftermath of the First World War. They, 
They actually dispatched a war criminal, Enver Pasha, who was responsible for the Armenian mass killings after the First World War. They sent him secretly, disguised as a Red Cross doctor, to meet with Trotsky. He was arrested twice in the process of trying to get to the Soviet Union, but eventually made it, and they began communicating initially via telegraph, eventually opening up essentially, essentially secret diplomatic communications that excluded the German government. It was just German military to the Soviet state. But the Soviet government, they always hoped that a revolution would take place in, in Germany, which would, would mean they didn't have to deal with these nasty military officers. But in 1923, there was a, a third major attempt at a communist revolution in Germany. It failed badly. And after that, essentially, uh, the, the leaders of the Soviet Union decided that they needed to cut their losses and essentially work on building this partnership with the German military rather than concentrating on revolution. So initially, they, they very much distrusted each other and very slowly they began to work more closely after the failure of that communist revolution attempt. Honestly, it's sort of an answer because I always wondered, like, how did you overcome an ideology issue, especially with the idea that the Bolshevik government started out very early on to sort of invade the rest of Europe, you know, the Polish-Soviet war, et cetera. So it's sort of interesting to see how they could kind of overcome what, from my perspective, would be a pretty big hurdle. Um, when looking at sort of the fact that the Germans initiated, would you say they had like the most to gain from this cooperation or is it the Soviets who are sort of isolated in their new government sort of gaining the most from this cooperation? Well, in the very early phases of the relationship, the Soviets had a lot that they wanted from Germany too. That The Soviet Union was a mess after the revolution and civil war. Uh, you know, the millions had died somewhere around 10 million deaths. The entire middle and upper classes had either fled or been imprisoned by and large. The, the experts that had run Russian industry were gone. Much of the military uh, was in shambles. They needed German help in professionalizing the Red Army, in developing tanks and planes and industry. This was a key part of the Soviet project anyway, to industrialize. So Germany became a major source of machine tools, equipment, supplies. In fact, Germany until about 1933 was by far the largest and most important Soviet trading partner, played a really big role in the Stalin's first five-year plan, a slightly lesser role in the second five-year plan. So the Russians got a lot out of this as well. And they were, they were eager for German help provided they got it on their own terms. So essentially this was a, a relationship predicated on exchanging Russian territory and the ability to build these secret bases and research and, and, uh, and train. And in exchange, the Germans were expected to give access to the newest technologies of war, to their prototypes, to their expertise. And essentially, German officers were expected to train thousands of Red Army officers. They were embedded in the major military institutions around the country. So it was very much a two-way street. It was a relationship that grew bigger and bigger and really peaked in 1931. So it took about 10 years to reach full fruition. Somehow I'm not surprised that the Russians were very much interested in cooperation so long as it was on sort of their terms. seems like a theme that comes up consistently throughout history. Um, you started to say at one point that it peaked in 1931 and then you said it sort of stopped in 1933. Would you mind walking us through sort of what happened in the 1930s that sort of predicated this shift in cooperation? Well, the short answer is Hitler. Uh, so until, until January 1933, the people dominating the Weimar Republic's government were, uh, especially in its last few years, were military men. The president was, was Hindenburg. The dominant member of the cabinet for the last several years of the Weimar Republic was Kurt von Schleicher, who was a, an active duty general. And they really, they were quite enthusiastic about the Soviet partnership. They were quite eager to re rearm Germany and the Soviet Union was a logical means of doing so. 
But when Kurt von Schleicher was unable to tame the Nazis and try to bring them into a government under his own control, and Hindenburg made Hitler chancellor in January 1933, the, the relationship changed very quickly. Hitler, of course, had written in Mein Kampf about the destruction of the Soviet Union. He viewed the entire Soviet project as some sort of a Jewish conspiracy and threatening to Germany. He'd actually written a second book that was unpublished saying that a partnership with the Soviet Union was a bad idea, but he didn't initially destroy the partnership. There was one more training season that summer, one more generation of, of German pilots who learned how to fly in the USSR. And then in September, 1939, he began completing the unraveling of the partnership. They began withdrawing their, their prototypes. They began withdrawing their officers. And this was in large part because he was fairly confident that the British and French would not stop German rearmament at that juncture. And so he felt safe doing all of these activities that had been done in the Soviet Union at home, much cheaper, much easier, and he didn't trust the Soviets. So the relationship really unraveled at that point. There, there would be tenuous ways in which the relationship would continue. Economic partnership really never stopped. There, there was an exchange going both ways. And there was actually some joint work on submarine design through 1935. But by and large, Hitler would end the first phase of the relationship. Okay, so it seems like from this perspective, a lot of it was an internal sort of tension between the cooperation that sort of brought it to the end. Were there any sort of external factors that may have played into it uh, in the process of doing my own research, not to sort of toot my own horn in terms of my thesis, uh, I was doing a lot of work on the Franco-Soviet pact and sort of what led to that as trying to justify why the so-called alliance occurred. And I was wondering if the sort of Franco-Soviet relations ever really played a major role that sort of led to the end of cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd like to read that thesis when it's when it's said and done. The the Germans uh, for, for the Soviets, the the ultimate aim initially with the partnership, the, the great fear of Lenin and then Trotsky and then Stalin was that, that there would be a capitalist crusade uniting all of the states of Western Europe and perhaps Japan against the USSR. This was the great fear of capitalist encirclement. And the Soviets always tried to keep these potential adversaries separated. This was one of the great virtues in their mind of the partnership with Germany. When the German relationship fell apart, they rapidly pivoted towards France. This was part of the, the broader collective security project that Maxim Litvinov uh, began wor working on as, uh, as foreign minister, commissar of foreign affairs. Stalin, though, he, uh, he never entirely broke off the German connection. And there is some evidence for this, even in, in the way in which the, the Soviet, the Franco-Soviet pact unfolded. So one element, of course, was that essentially it went, it was very much within the context of the League of Nations, that the two states would agree to turn to the League if, in the event of aggression, which really limited the utility of the pact initially. And in addition, the French requested that the Soviets supply them with intel about German rearmament. All the stuff the Germans had done in the Soviet Union was illegal. In theory, they could request sanctions through the League of Nations in that event. And Stalin said no. <laughs> he, he refused to pass along intelligence. And the reason was he had his own military and diplomatic officers consistently probing the Germans to talk about a renewal of this first phase of cooperation. He had Tukhachevsky, a senior military officer, reach out to the Germans in 34, diplomats doing so in 35, 36, 37. So he, he never entirely gave up on that German connection. So Absolutely, the Franco-Soviet pact, Hitler wasn't happy about it. It, uh, it certainly expanded the distance between Berlin and Moscow. But at the end of the day, it was, uh, it was not, there was other, there was other Soviet uh, diplomatic efforts going on behind the scenes. Okay. 
Well, I'm glad you said it like that because it didn't totally destroy my argument at all in the slightest. So I'm actually quite happy about that. Was okay. One of my big concerns was talking to you, an expert on sort of this time period, finding out that, oh, the Franco-Soviet pact was a complete sham or something, which sort of leads me to my next point. Do you, in the course of your research, did you find like the Franco-Soviet relations legitimate in the same way that the Franco-German attempts were? Or do you feel like it was sort of a cover story for the public while sort of seeking a back room uh, agreement with Germany? No, I think, I think the Soviet Union did pursue collective security seriously. Uh, so your thesis is, you know, very important. Should make that very clear. Good. Little worry. Uh, Stalin always played uh, in, throughout the 20s and 30s. He always played both sides. He always had uh, something going on uh, behind the scenes with even even states with which he had some antagonisms. This was just part of the way in which he operated. I think that uh, there there was some genuine expectation that collective security might work. He thought that maybe partnership with the British and French could in fact deter German aggression. I think you see this clearly in the case of the, uh, the, the Czechoslovak crisis in 1938. He thinks very seriously that there might be a, a way in which the Soviet Union will come to the assistance of Czechoslovakia. The Soviet military does a partial mobilization. This is all part of that, that alliance with, with France. But the British and French essentially exclude the Soviet Union from the talks at Munich. They largely exclude the Soviet Union from their calculations about containing Germany. And there are some significant reasons why they did so, the largest of which I would argue were the purges, which, which we can talk about if you're interested. Um, so it mattered a lot, but then eventually fell apart by the fall of 1938. Yeah, that's actually been a lot of what I've also sort of sensed from, it seemed like collective security was also sort of a big issue that could have been pursued. I've taken sort of in the course of my studying, I've been soured by the actions of the British and French at sort of rejecting Soviet sort of advances for collective security. Maybe I'm just a little biased at this point with my focus on Russia. But I, I yeah, I would like to talk about the purges a little because it seems like when the purges started to happen in 37, 38, that's sort of when other militaries of potential allied nations sort of turned away saying the political stability or the military stability in Russia doesn't seem to be guaranteed. And so I'd like to hear more about sort of the effects that the purges had. Absolutely. So this is one of the main claims that my book advances. So the, the purges have been somewhat uh, mysterious in terms of their intent. Everybody generally agrees that Stalin believed this would somehow improve his, his grip on the Soviet Union. But why in the midst of a growing international crisis would you decapitate your military, diplomatic and intelligence services? People still don't quite know uh, the causes for this. In my book, I argue that one of the main reasons was he thought that a war with Germany was very possible. And that it turned out the Germans had trained a huge percentage of the Soviet Union senior officers. So 156 senior officers, essentially uh, general rank, uh, had studied in Germany and lived there. Mikhail Tukhachevsky was very popular. He was the deputy uh, commissar of defense at this point, the likely uh, general who would command, actually command uh, Soviet forces in the event of a war in Europe. He had very close ties to his German counterparts. The Germans had essentially trained the heads of the, uh, the Soviet Air Force, civil defense, most of their major corps and division commanders. And I think Stalin was concerned that in the event of war, the military would essentially um, try to cut a deal with the Germans, overthrow his government, pull something maybe like the French Revolution. I think that was the analogy in his mind. And so we can see in 1937, he requests lists of every Soviet officer who had studied in Germany. Most of them are dead within a year. Uh, 
In fact, the purges at the various camps that had uh, once existed that were now Soviet military bases where the Germans had studied, they purged the plumbers, they purged the, purged the custodial staff, they uh, arrested the, uh, the, the cafeteria ladies who served food to the Germans when they'd been there five years earlier. Anyone with a German connection disappeared. And the result of all this was essentially that the, the Red Army went from being numerically the, the largest military in Europe and generally conceived of being the most effective military. It had the most planes, tanks, seemed hypermodern uh, to outside observers, to a very ineffective implement. That was generally the estimation of the British and French intelligence services. And keep in mind, the British and French were broadly skeptical and concerned about the USSR. The Soviet Union had killed 6 million of its own citizens during collectivization. It murdered another million, perhaps, in the purges. The state was not one that they wanted to be partnered with. The, the main appeal of the Soviet Union was that, in essence, it had a military capable of deterring Germany, particularly from intervening against Romania or Poland. And when the Red Army had been decapitated in this fashion, essentially, they concluded that there was no point in including the Soviet Union in anything. Chamberlain's quote to his cabinet was something to the effect that, the Soviet Union now possesses no capacity to assist us, but a great irritative effect on others, thinking of Poland and Romania and others. So in essence, Stalin was excluded from talks at Munich and elsewhere in, in large part because they didn't trust him. And in addition, they didn't think he could accomplish much even if included in the talks. Hmm. So going back to Stalin a little bit, was any like were any of his concerns actually valid that the military may seek to do sort of a decapitation and side with the Germans if war broke out? Or were these sort of just paranoia that sort of came out out of worry of his own secure, like his lack of security in his position? It's a good question. Uh, some senior Soviet officials continued to believe until their dying day that the Soviet military very well might have attempted a coup. So Molotov, who uh, did interviews in the 70s, he said, if war had begun, I don't know whose side Tukhachevsky would have been on. And Tukhachevsky was the heart of this. Uh, he was an ex-nobleman. He was incredibly ambitious. He probably wasn't a very devout communist. Uh, and he was charismatic and, and very uh, competent. And so he presented, presented a real threat to Stalin. And obviously, there'd been a lot, of, uh, a lot of people within the military who hadn't been thrilled about collectivization, which had uh, killed or dislocated many family members of people in, in military service. Whether or not this was true, the, the main evidence that was presented at Tukhachevsky's trial was in fact that he'd worked with the Germans per orders that had been given by the Red Army. And in addition, evidence had been provided privately. Uh, the Germans had forged documents indicating that Tukhachevsky had been in communication about a possible military coup. They were almost certainly forgeries, but that we know that Stalin saw them at some point uh, in 1937. So there may have been some evidence suggesting this was the case. I think it's highly unlikely Stalin believed it seriously, but he might have thought that there was some possibility. And, and being Stalin, he's maybe be just the possibility was enough to uh, to sign the death warrants of many of his most competent officers. I always got to say Soviet politics and that whole era is always just I don't like touching that. So the fact that you're able to concisely sort of summarize what happened and sort of the logic behind Stalin's action, I, I find a great benefit. Um, moving forward in time a little bit, you brought up that it news again in 39. And I'm sort of curious as like the main reason for that, because we had sort of the French and British rejecting Soviet advances. But sort of what was that sort of catalyst point that sort of flipped the switch and had them come back together again in cooperation? Part of it was the exclusion of the Soviets at, at Munich. Stalin was uncertain of the reliability of his partnerships with, with France after that. 
uh, he was very convinced that the French and British hope was to turn Germany eastward to get the two states involved in a war that they could sit back and watch. His dream was to do the opposite, to get Germany fighting the British and French while the Soviets remain neutral and perhaps even swept up, swept in to clean up the pieces in the aftermath. This was something he talked about. We know uh, there are records of those conversations. The, the moment at which the Soviet Union and Germany begin to talk again, is it's, it probably comes in December 1938. They begin renewing trade talks. The Soviets present a pretty extensive list of arms purchases they wanted to make from Germany in January 1939. It's unlikely they would have thought Hitler was, would sell them all this new weaponry unless there was some sort of broader political arrangement. You don't sell your newest fighter planes or bombers or tanks to a country you're likely to go to war with. So that gets the ball rolling. And then in, in the spring of 1939, the British guaranteed the security of Poland. This was a, a real shift because it, it, first of all, it ended Hitler's efforts to bring Poland in as a potential ally against the Soviet Union. It's unlikely Poland would have done so, but Hitler thought it might. And in addition, Poland was not strong enough to defeat Germany by itself, and neither the British or French could provide enough military supplies to help Poland defeat Germany should Germany attack, which meant that Poland would have had to have some sort of arrangement with the Soviet Union. It was the only way in which Polish sovereignty could really be guaranteed. And the British and French did not contact Stalin. So Stalin interpreted this to mean the British and French were just trying again to turn Germany eastward, that he was going to get involved in a war he didn't want to fight, and that they were unwilling to, to pony up for their own defense in some way, shape, or form. So at this point, in April 1939, he opens essentially direct talks with the Germans. By May, there's the rough outline of an economic agreement. Political, a rough draft political agreement followed in, in August. Stalin did allow French and British negotiators to come to Moscow to talk with him, but I don't think these were good faith talks. I think he invited them primarily so he could raise the, the cost of his partnership with Germany. Germany gave up more and more seeing that the British and French were had negotiators present. But in any case, at the end of August, of course, they, the two states signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which partitioned Eastern Europe between them and initiated a broad exchange of weaponry from Germany to the Soviet Union in exchange for Soviet raw materials, particularly oil. And then I'm obviously from there, we know sort of how history plays out. Uh, considering this is a security-focused podcast, I'd like to sort of look to the future a little bit and apply if there's any lessons that the West or the United States specifically can learn about sort of Soviet foreign policy and how they behave towards potential adversaries and potential allies, namely with the chance of a rising China in Asia, what can we say or learn from this experience that would help us inform on what Russia may try to do when faced with sort of the unfriendly states of Eastern Europe, but also a much stronger contender coming from Asia? Absolutely. So in, in the case of the, the interwar period, Germany and the Soviet Union were brought together by their shared antagonism towards the international order. They both thought the order built after the First World War uh, was a problem in a variety of ways. Obviously, the communists hoped for a global revolution. The Germany, Germans wanted territorial revision and rearmament. There are some similarities in the contemporary moment, particularly in the Russia-China relationship. So some people have asked, is there a, a new potential Faustian bargain uh, that, that could come out of this, this relationship? And the answer is, is maybe. So just roughly sketching that relationship right now. So the Russians clearly are, are deeply concerned about the possibility of a color revolution at home. This has been arguably the central uh, driving uh, strategic aim that they're trying to avoid, a color revolution like those that took place in Ukraine or Georgia or other post-Soviet states. 
And so they've seen Western democracies, arguably their, their, their largest adversary, their largest threat in the international system. And they've responded by being quite aggressive in their near abroad and intervening elsewhere when it can give them, them leverage vis-a-vis -vis the West. A partnership with China seems to, to work towards that, that same end to some degree. There, China similarly has a lot of issues with the US-dominated political, military, and economic order. It's, been, uh, it's challenged the United States in a number of ways. So we see this, this alignment of interest to some degree. And we've seen what this looks like in practice. So Xi Jinping famously called Putin his best friend last year. The two states have been doing joint military exercises over the last several years in, in the Pacific and along their shared border. Perhaps most importantly, Russia has become the largest or the second at the moment, but soon to become the largest energy supplier to China. They're building a pipeline uh, from, from Siberia into, to, into Northern China. So the, the trade relationship has become quite important. I believe Russia, about 14, 15% of its exports go to China. The economic relationship has grown and grown and grown. So there are a lot of similarities. We see uh, a, a lot of the same sort of uh, structural factors that led Germany and the Soviet Union together. And obviously that's, that's scary. That's not something US policymakers should, should want. You can imagine that that partnership could be enormously disruptive if for instance, there are simultaneously uh, issues in the Baltic states and Taiwan, uh, global attention would be greatly distracted. The British and French response when confronted by the German-Soviet partnership had been, uh, had been essentially appeasement, an effort to try to separate those two states from each other, whether or not that would, and if you succeeded, the evidence suggests no. So how the U.S. should respond to that too is a big question mark. I, I would say though, as a note of caution, that there are some fundamental differences too. So Germany and the Soviet Union in the period that I study, it's really a partnership of near equals. The Soviet Union's a mess after the Civil War, but it's a large country. It has a large military. By 1939, it's got a huge uh, industrial base, very large professional military. Their GDPs are almost identical. Their economies are very similar sizes. So although there is some imbalance, the Germans have better technology, the Soviets have more natural resources, it's really a partnership of equals in a lot of ways. And that's why that relationship worked until Hitler betrayed Stalin in 1941. The contemporary situation is very different. The Russian Federation is an economy about one-tenth the size of China. Uh, it, uh, its military is obviously much smaller. It really lacks the, the capacity to change uh, events on a global stage to the degree that Germany and the Soviet Union did in, say, 1939. And the Russians know this. So my sense is that the, the current partnership with China is as much about appearances as it is about realities. I think the Russians love pulling that, that Chinese thread to, to indicate or threaten US, kind of the US global order saying, listen, this is, you know, if we become best friends, we could really destabilize the international system. But the Russians are wary of becoming a, a sort of vassal state to the Chinese or economically dependent. And that's why quietly, the Russians have done stuff like Gazprom 2, the, the new pipe, you know, the pipelines into Western Europe. There, there have been all sorts of efforts to, uh, to make sure the Russian Federation is not too dependent on the Chinese connection. So, so I think that a Russian pivot to, to directly towards China to really a, a cement their military partnership uh, is, is unlikely unless they're essentially, if they have a sense that their backs are against the wall, that they're completely isolated from the international system. I think it would take some some fairly extreme circumstances to drive them together that closely. And I would I would 
concur. And my thesis, my end conclusion was U.S. policymakers should take a bit of a breath about this idea that a, of a Sino-Russian alignment all out of nowhere. And I essentially concluded in my paper that the thing that would drive them most together is either the U.S., as you said, puts their back against the wall or Russia suffers a complete economic collapse where they just have to become a vassal state, which is not out of the cards. The future is still unknown, but I definitely am sort of glad that in your research of the past, we can kind of see that although there's some similarities now, they're not necessarily the same factors that uh, there were in the 1930s. Um, if you would like to have any final points, I would think we can stop here. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank everybody who tuned in to listen today. If you'd like to learn more, please check out uh, Professor Johnson's new book, The Fustinian Bargain. Uh, when is that planning on hitting shelves? It, it starts shipping in May. It's available for pre-order now. So if anybody who knows me wants to get me a graduation gift, uh, that would probably be much appreciated. Uh, thank you, Ian Johnson, Professor Ian Johnson, for joining us here today. If you enjoyed listening, please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and, and or SoundCloud. And with that, uh, as always, go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash n-d-i-s-c forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>